This is Pamva here. The music you're listening to today is particularly special to us. It comes to us courtesy of our friend John O'Leary, trained neuroscientist and jazz pianist. He has his own unique take on science communication and that's through his music. This track, CRISPR, comes from an album that he successfully kickstarted and contains music written to inspire people to think differently about neuroscience, genetics, and more specifically, the lives of people affected by Alzheimer's. Please go to our website, twoscientists.org, to find out more because he's generously donating 10% of all proceeds from this album to Alzheimer's research. Good evening, ladies and germs. This seems like a particularly appropriate introduction for this evening's guest, um, who is Professor Lindsay Shaw, also known as Les. How are you doing, Les? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. So, as you might be able to tell from his dulcet tones, he comes from the same part of the world as me, right? Yep, I do. I'm from England. Can you explain to us your your journey to end up at the University of South Florida in Tampa? Sure, yeah. So, I did my... Uh degrees in training in England and Norwich and then PhD in Sheffield and during my time in Sheffield I spent a very cold winter in Poland studying biochemistry and when I was in Poland the person who ran the lab spent half his year at the University of Georgia in Athens and so um, when I was coming towards the end of my PhD they knew they probably couldn't pay me to go back to Poland beautiful as it is uh, but they could probably entice me to Athens Georgia so I, I moved over as a postdoc almost 15 years ago now to, to UGA. And from UGA, obviously, you moved on to, it's actually quite it's a young age to become a professor, right? Yeah, I guess I've, I always feel like I get where I'm going a little bit younger than most and maybe <laughs> take a bit of time catching up. I, I, I don't know, but yeah, I, four years at Georgia, briefly in Missouri, and then I came to USF 10 years ago now. Okay. So now that we know how you got here, what is it you do while you're here? <clears throat> yeah, so... My lab studies drug-resistant bacteria, mm-hmm. and so I've always worked on the uh, major human pathogen MRSA or MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and so I studied how it kills people when I was doing my PhD and carried on with that uh, through my postdoctoral training, and then when I started my own lab, uh, we, we carry on with those topics, but we also branch into therapeutic development too, so making new antibiotics. I know from you being a speaker at our festivals over the years, I've heard your, your story. You have a particular reason for studying what you do. Yeah, so it's personal to me. Um, when I was 13, I had um, a minor but in need of surgery, hip deformity that needed to be corrected. And so uh, uh, I now know, uh, talking to infectious disease doctors, that pretty much everything that goes into the human body is contaminated. And so during my surgery and three pins were placed to correct my hip problem two of them had staph aureus on them and and so uh, I effectively lived with a staph aureus infection for five years um, because it doesn't go away you can't eradicate it once it's on the the pins that are implanted and so they either come out which they can't because the hip was forming or uh, you live with it and hope it's okay and it was okay I guess so, although in the future it actually might not be there's potential for what's called reactivation oh wow and, and so yeah there was a really interesting case in New England Journal of Medicine several years ago about how staph can uh, get calcified over in the bone and hide there and then as you age you get decreased bone loss and then the bugs reactivate and the infection potentially could reappear and so um, it may, I may have a small amount of osteomyelitis and calcified staph in my hip still but um, as soon as the pins came out I was fine and uh, 
that's been 20 plus years okay it becomes very personal very quickly i guess yeah so i spent a lot of time in hospitals around drugs and bacteria from the age of 13 and so uh when it came time to choosing what to do at university i guess i didn't really have a lot of choice uh, uh-huh. during uh, the last part of high school in england microbiology was the only thing that interested me and so mm-hmm. my high school microbiome my high school biology project was a very crude version of what i actually do in my own lab right now looking for new therapeutics so uh, yeah it's pretty much all i've done since i was a teenager yeah so how commonly do these infection these kinds of infections in hospitals occur yeah very frequently um the uh the numbers range but it's tens of thousands and particularly for um orthopedic surgeries you know okay. big yeah. major invasive surgeries anything that's implanted um pacemakers pins plates uh yeah it's quite common and staff is the leading cause of those because it forms biofilms on these devices that are implanted and yeah a lot of people unfortunately um, knee replacements hip replacements it's kind of scary mm mm-hmm. So obviously this is a complete aside to all the infections that we can get from the outside world. Right, yeah, so you you theoretically go to a hospital to get fixed, you know, get cured and not get sick, but hospitals are full of sick people and healthy bacteria the old adage goes. So uh they getting bugs out of hospitals is difficult and particularly when you've got easy victims in hospitals too and so um yeah, hospitals unfortunately are a place where infections occur. Again having been to your talk actually specifically this year this is the first time I've seen one in person um you reel off like all these terrifying numbers about how quickly we're running out of antibiotics for these things so there there sure. is a real urgency to develop new ones right yeah so uh every year the well it's been for a while a dwindling numbers of approved antibiotics by the FDA um there is some movement in small biotech medium biotech and then big pharma to develop new drugs and some things are coming through the pipeline but it's it's almost too little too late but there was a major discovery void in the 80s 90s and early 2000s where pharma really got out of the game because it's not super profitable to make an antibiotic it either works or it doesn't there's no repeat customer and so uh the profit model isn't there for infectious disease and so as pharma kind of got out of the game it became uh, apparent that bugs were becoming more resistant and our treatment options were fewer and fewer so uh Yeah, it reached a real serious point maybe about 5 or 6 years ago and it's not really getting a lot better. There is some renewed effort but it ebbs and flows and so yeah. we could potentially be in a what we call a post-antibiotic era in the next 10 20 years. That's horrifying. It is and uh, the World Health Organization uh, has said that if we get there it's the end of modern medicine as we know it. Um you can forget basic surgeries, transplants, chemotherapy, Um, you even take antibiotics when you go to the dentist, right? There's so many things mm-hmm. that we rely on antibiotics for solving infections so we can deal with more chronic problems, but um if you take away antibiotics, the estimates are that uh drug-resistant infections will kill more people than diabetes and cancer and heart disease. Yeah, and they presumably do it a lot quicker if these things are capable of spreading. Yeah, so transmission too within the population. Yeah, I mean you get huge drift very quickly and then this is this is how we died before we had treatments mm-hmm. you know hundreds of years ago it was always infection lifespans were very low because simple common things that are all around us would kill us yeah so we've already got this kind of backlash against people taking vaccines on top of that so you've got the virus is coming at us from one side and bacteria from the other well, you know i like to think infectious disease is the most important thing so yeah i mean it, it there's uh 
it, it's we've been living with infectious disease for an, an awfully long time and we still are nowhere close to being up to speed with it it's we have this notion this kind of hubris that we're super smart and we know everything but we are so far behind these tiny little theoretically simplistic organisms yeah so how is it how do we get people to care about this because everybody seems to be quite blasé about the fact that these these kind of treatments for us are running out it's it's advocacy mm -hmm. i mean because infection is acute and so you live with it and you get sick and you get better or you don't um, it's unfortunate but there's no long-term advocacy for versus living with diabetes for 30 years mm -hmm. or having the stats on cancer are huge and so everyone's family's touched by cancer and it's easy to get behind cancer other chronic diseases heart disease um, but infection is something that's almost we're just used to uh, we have it we take antibiotics it's gone and so the, the, the real seriousness of it is it never seems to permeate I mean when I talk to people that in the moment they get it but then I think they probably walk away and then a week later it's gone right mm. and so there's a real lack of advocacy and I'm not really sure how we solve that yeah because it, I suppose if you don't get people impassioned on the subject you can't push forward greater funding for these things and to actually have more people trying to develop the treatments right 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 and so the things that there are several things that we need to do but they require a groundswell of um, interest from the public we need obviously more funding but everyone needs more funding uh, mm -hmm. the simplest thing we could do tomorrow is stop using antibiotics in agriculture 70 percent of all antibiotics go to agriculture uh, and they don't need to um, yeah and so by using antibiotics you get higher yields for meat or for egg production um, but you also generate resistant organisms in the food chain and the resistance genes get into the food chain get into uh, onto our plates and and are mishandled by us in the kitchen and so we don't need to have this in the food chain and if we didn't it would solve a lot of problems but agriculture doesn't want that because their profits go down and mm -hmm. farmer doesn't want it because they lose 70 percent of all sales and so there's just a moneyed interest that prevents that kind of thing happening the other thing that always crops up in a similar vein is people taking antibiotics inappropriately. Is this actually the case? Because I don't know if I read this somewhere recently that it might be that people can stop the <laughs> regimen beforehand. Yeah. Or is this just one of those poor, poorly reported stories? Uh, and that's the trouble with those kinds of things. It's dangerous. You have to be very careful with how you report those kind of things because it's easy to somewhat capture public attention and then you got a problem so yeah that was a story that came out of england and at least set twitter on fire that i was looking at but never really hit the media over here as much and and most of my colleagues in england were horrified by it and, and so yeah there was some suggestion that maybe you don't need to take the full course of antibiotics but it's it's far from complete idea and i think it's a, a risky notion and it just captured media attention and got more exposure than more important things mm -hmm. So yeah, that one's definitely uh, far from proven, and I think it's uh, not something that people should really start to do right now. Um, yeah. Okay, so your lab, obviously, you say you're trying to work on new treatments. Where do you go to look for new antibiotics? Uh, we can go either down the hall, or we can send people to Antarctica, for example. Mm -hmm. So. Um, Something like I think 50 to 70 percent of all drugs in the clinic for all treatments are either from nature or inspired by nature. And so nature just has a way of developing drugs that work in biological systems because they're made in biological systems. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of collaborations with natural products chemists 
And so one of our favorite collaborators, uh, a guy called Bill Baker in the USF Department of Chemistry. And so he's a globetrotter and he's been traveling the world for decades looking for new places for new chemistry. And uh, every year he goes to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a couple of years ago, every time he goes, we say it brings back something cool. And yep. he brought back a sponge a few years ago. And it's one of those things I didn't even really know about it until it was done. But he got a sponge and found some new chemistry from the sponge and gave it to one of my students. And they ran a test and, and its ability to kill MRSA was, was good, but we've seen better. But it seemed to prefer what's called the biofilm form of MRSA. And so mm-hmm. that's really the way bacteria exist in the wild. And an infection is this thing called a biofilm, which is um, this kind of um, polymicrobial matrix of adhesion and sticky proteins and DNA. It's like a protective coat. And you can take sensitive bacteria and stick them in a biofilm and then they're totally resistant to everything. And, so this, this compound he found from uh, this Antarctic sponge actually preferred killing biofilm cells than what we call planktonic regular cells, mm-hmm. which we hadn't seen before. And so that was kind of cool. And, and then we called it Darwinolide. And so you got its name and it's, it's Mercer, it's Antarctica, and it's the sponge and biofilms. And that, that went crazy. That was the most read paper of anything from the American Chemical Society last year. Oh, wow. 90,000 reads. Uh, they had a, their annual general meeting in San Francisco in April. It was, it was featured as... A big deal. Um, the next most read paper was ten thousand. So, wow. So yeah, that was kind of a fun study. Um, so Antarctica, the Florida Everglades. Um, we have collaborators who work with plants. We just got Devil's Snare, which I only know from Harry Potter. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> so we got extracts from that recently. So a lot of it's from nature. And then we wander down the hallway to uh, to friends with synthetic or medicinal chemists and. Mm-hmm. They have their own favorite kind of molecules or strategies for derivatizing molecules. And so we, uh, we've done a lot of those different kind of projects too. So we're equal opportunity in terms of where we'll take chemistry from. Uh-huh. Also meaning you just take it from wherever you can get it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I can't make molecules. Right? I tell yeah. my chemistry collaborators, I don't make things so you don't test them, right? We have yeah. this perfect uh, parasitic relationship. <laughs> Isn't it not symbiotic? I, I guess it's symbiotic. I, Depends who I'm working with. Some people, it feels my parasitic. <laughs> so this actually leads us nicely onto a, a kind of two-part question we got from Vidad. Do you know Vidad? Yeah, I do. He's one of our former students yes. uh, in my program. I thought so. Who is now in Birmingham, Alabama. That's right. He went to UAB. He did. Uh, and he says, um, does thawing of permafrost resulting from climate change and the exposure to the potentially deadly bugs pose as much threat as growing drug resistance i mean it's the stuff of movies right um and as i always like to say tell students when i teach there the minute you say you definitively know something in science you're wrong Mm -hmm. so i can't say for sure that that's true um but potentially uh, there is the potential for buried deep beneath anywhere on the planet we haven't really explored microbes we haven't encountered but these would need to be microbes that are tens and tens of thousands of years old right? mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of us seeing them or relatives if it's only a couple hundred years it's not that long right and so they it would have to be really ancient um, and so the potential does exist uh, you're likely to have these things be not drug resistant although drug resistance occurs in the wild and and evolved before we used antibiotics because yeah bacteria have been using antibiotics to fight each other forever but the soil is a place where that's ongoing and permafrost you're gonna have very um, slow down or stasis of evolution so there's not much going on in that kind of environment and so uh, theoretically we would potentially be able to treat things that came from mm-hmm. such a situation but 
might take a while to figure out what's going on as well. So the potential exists, but uh, I'm not about to say it's the most scary thing that we could potentially face. Yeah. We, just as likely, you could turn it on its head and say, um, the novel microbes we find in that environment aren't infectious, but actually do make chemistry that we've never seen before, and we could harness them for treatments. And so there is just as much power for it to be good and bad. That's funny, because that was the second part of his question. <laughs> he said, do you think the thawing permafrost soil being mined uh, is a potential source of antibiotics to help us fight current drug resistance bugs? Yes, it is. Uh, and so everywhere is. That's the thing that, that it's still, I think, true that the cure for most everything we need is out there in nature. It's just harder and harder to find. And so when one goes looking for it, and we do it ourselves, we we go looking for novel soil microbes all the time. One of my students' projects, two of them actually, is, is three. Yeah, it's ever growing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's to look for novel microbes in different places or take known microbes and play with them differently. So yeah, we're always looking for new places to find microbes and underexplored or unexplored are the perfect place to go. So okay. yes, I think so. I mean, we have this kind of nebulous idea that infectious diseases will kill us, but explain how it is that they work because I know you also study the mechanisms of how they work and how the, the antibiotics work. Yeah, so that's, I'm trained as a bacterial geneticist and so I evolved into a drug discovery person but started out fascinated by bacteria and how they work because they're theoretically simplistic little cells with no in, uh, intracellular organization, no organelles, no compartments. So uh, it's just a big bag of biochemistry and so how is it that they then kill so many people and, and, and one would think that this simple tiny bag of biochemistry is not particularly ordered or structured but that's actually what it is. It's inordinately well structured. And, the control and regulation within that cell to not only grow and survive but thrive and then kill things so much larger than itself is um, is fascinating to me. That's the stuff that really keeps me up at night. I mean, the, the, you, the, we're all going to die from drug-resistant infections. If you let that keep you up at night, you'll never sleep. So, <laughs> but the puzzles about how these things work is just fascinating to me. So, so yeah, I've been studying using MRSA mostly because. Well, now, what does MRSA stand for? Methicillin resistant Staph aureus. Um, in the UK, we say MRSA, but over here they say MRSA. It's mm -hmm. confusing to people, but um, it kind of still does. Not necessarily the methicillin resistant form, but all forms of Staph aureus, drug resistant or sensitive, probably still cause more infections in a human beings than any other organism and more deaths. Uh, and so it does this with a relatively small genome. So it's got a small number of genes and proteins that it can use to do this, but it still does it incredibly well. And it does it in more niches within the human body than any other bacteria so it's just very good it knows human beings better than we know ourselves and so mm. figuring out how it does that is, is fascinating so we study control within the cell and then control of the progression of infection to how it it knows where it is what part of the body it is and how it changes its behavior changes its um, protein synthesis to adapt to cause osteomyelitis in the bone or pneumonia in the lungs endocarditis in the heart pneumonia uh, meningitis in the brain, skin infections, um, septic arthritis in joints, it's endless, food poisoning, toxic shock syndrome. So it just has different subsets of proteins it can use in each environment mm -hmm. and how it figures out where it is and how to, to kind of change, changing its spots to, yeah. to fit that new niche is, to me is fascinating. And surprisingly, after many, many years of study, we know a lot more than we did, but we still don't know a great deal. And I think that's best exemplified by the fact that so many people have tried to make a vaccine for Staph aureus and 
big pharma and academia and medium biotech for decades and people will tell you that they've made some good advances but we've got nothing that's even close to working yet yeah so actually another one of the questions we have from Arthur who is one of our festival organizers from the Boston Cambridge area he said I heard one approach for new drugs was working on virulence instead of trying to kill the pathogens so we sure. escaped the circle of selection and resistance how far are we from this yeah, so antivirulence therapies have been around for decades. Um, and so I spend a lot of time, when I'm not doing these things myself, reviewing uh, papers and grants for people trying to do this kind of work. And so it's a lot of people are really going down that road because the idea is that if you're not trying to kill the bacteria, there's less selection for resistance because it's the life or death question that you face the bacteria with that causes it to fight back. And whereas if you just tamper down its virulence, maybe it's not so bad. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't seen it work yet. Many people have tried and tried hard. There's a very obvious system in Staph aureus that you can target for this. Uh, there's essentially one major system that controls toxin production, and there are natural inhibitors of that system. But they've been touted as therapies for decades, and they haven't made it close to clinic. Mm -hmm. One of the things, I was talking to an infectious disease colleague of mine, an MD uh, physician, a couple of weeks ago, and I mean, he, he doesn't really buy into that as a... a a physician treating patients but he said more than that is that it's a culture you just even if those therapies existed you'd have to change the way that id docs have been working for decades and to to, to want get them to want to do that yeah the idea that they wouldn't kill the bacteria inside the person causing an infection horrifies them right yeah they do no harm thing is they just want to cure the infection as quick as possible yeah and you do find that if you take this system in staph aureus that controls toxin production and you delete it those organisms can still cause some infections in people and so mm -hmm. it's it, not as many but it, it's still not that simple and then if you're immunocompromised antivirulent strategies wouldn't work because the idea is you tamper down toxin production let the immune system clear out the infection but if you have no immune system yep. it doesn't work and so yeah, yeah. i think it has the potential to work in certain niches but targeting virulence has been much more effective for vaccines right toxoid vaccines would neutralize the the, the toxin of say clostridial organisms that botulism and tetanus has worked great but the it's certainly not something my labs exert an effort into mm. but it not that we shouldn't try it because i've been wrong so many times before <laughs> you also mentioned something called i don't actually i don't even know how to say this because i know i assume it's based on phages you said phagotherapy yeah so the idea that um bacteria are parasitized by viruses like every other living cell and so they already have a natural born enemy in the population and so it's been around for a, an awful long time and it's really been popular in the, the old republics of um, Soviet Union Georgia particularly the country Georgia mm -hmm. um, the use of phages uh, to treat bacterial infections and so there's theoretically evidence that this works and there are a couple of um, major case studies in the last couple of years here in the US where uh, people's lives have been heroically saved when all of the measures failed by the use of phage therapy. So the idea is you release the the enemy of the bacteria into the person and it goes looking for only the bacteria and kills them and away you go. Um, but again, phage therapy has been around for an awful long time too and with varying success, right? We get these great um, stories of success, but the failures are less often reported. And there are a lot of potential problems with phage therapy too that need to be considered and and they're hard to, to circumvent. Um, one of the primary problems is that 
phages tend to interact with bacteria genetically and um, share DNA. Mm -hmm. So phages will uh, often pick up things from bacteria and many of them will carry toxins. And so in Staph aureus, one of the meanest toxins it has is encoded by a phage or has been acquired by a phage and is transmitted around populations by the phages. It infects cell to cell to cell. Oh. And so releasing a biologic into the wild and saying, you know, be good and only do what I told you and nothing else is, you know, we've seen that in other things like cane toads and, and the like. And so unintended consequences. And then there are also problems that phages uh, have a narrow host range. And so mm -hmm. they won't kill all bacteria and they won't actually kill all isolates of a single species. And so there's no such thing as an E. coli phage. Um, there are many E. coli phages and they maybe hit seven or eight strains, but you need a cocktail of phages to truly cure a single species. And so every single one of those phages would have to be licensed separately by the FDA and the, you potentially need 10, 20, 30 of them. And so it becomes difficult. Phages themselves are protein codes and so you've got immunogenicity problems in the host. The minute a foreign protein gets into people and then we, the immune system starts tracking it down and, and flagging it. And then there are also problems with um, being digested in the host. Uh, so again, all of these no idea should be discounted because we're in real trouble mm -hmm. and so uh, I don't put any of my efforts into phage therapy either because uh, there are just so many problems and I'm not clear how they get circumvented there are some one of the cool things that's being pushed I think it maybe has more options from phages is that the way that phages kill bacteria is they produce a particular enzyme during the end of the lytic infection which eats the, the cell from within and so you've mm -hmm. got these lytic enzymes produced by phages that specifically target bacteria and okay. so those might have more legs than a phage itself. Um, and I think one of those is currently in phase two trials. So that might actually have potential. Um, although, as I said, there are these heroic stories of phages saving people's lives. And so there's something in it. It's just, it's a much more complicated idea. Mm -hmm. And obviously you've always got the, how individuals presumably react to certain things, like any drug or anything you introduce into a person sure. will probably respond well in one person but not another. Right, exactly, right. And so that's just another consideration again, the, the idea of toxicity of these things in a cocktail being delivered to a to a human. And, and it's really hard to produce something that you say, uh, this is going to kill a staph or infection. But it might not because you could just have a strain that's not that's resistant to the, the cocktail of phages you're using. And it's the same thing with a vaccine, right? You can't make a vaccine that doesn't do what you say it will do because people will get annoyed when it doesn't work. So you need this efficacy that um, becomes problematic. David's asking, what about the immune system? Can we somehow leverage that? Sure, and so that's, uh, NIH just put out a call for that uh, a few weeks ago, and they've been doing it um, for a couple of years now, that can we uh, develop molecules to target the immune system to help support it? And, and yeah, I think that's got real potential. I'm, I'm no immunologist. I've been studying prokaryotes for 20 plus years, but you know the immune system's complicated, right? It's not inane to say that. That figuring out how you could therapeutically stimulate an immune system to target a bacterial infection is is work for people with who are potentially smarter than I am. But that that is an area of significant interest right now, and as I think real potential as we begin to understand, as you were saying earlier about how different people respond to different treatments, also how different people respond to bacterial infections. Some people are very susceptible, whilst others aren't, and it's to some degree um, personalized immune system traits. And so, uh, we're only just beginning to scratch the, the tip of that surface. So, um, Etienne is, I guess, because these guys look at kind of combining therapies in cancer treatment all the time, he's wondering if there are certain combinations of drugs that might be more effective. 
Yeah, so we've been doing combo therapy for bacterial infections for a long time. And um, particularly now with TB, for example, you can't do anything but multiple combo therapies because resistance is so easily engendered. Um, and so uh, there are a couple of different strategies that have been around a while. Um, the drug, I think it's one of the top five we take in this country, Augmentin, is a combination of a beta-lactam antibiotic and then a beta-lactamase inhibitor. And so you get a protein that targets a resistance mechanism of the antibiotic so that the resistance mechanism is being taken care of and the antibiotic uh -huh. can work again. Okay. So that's been around for a long while, these beta-lactamase uh, inhibitors, clavulanic acid. It's, it works great. Um, it's just that every time you one-up the bacteria, it one-ups you. And so you target its beta-lactamase and it says, all right, well, I'm going to get a new one that this one doesn't work against. And so mm -hmm. it becomes a constant biological arms race that we just ignored for too long. And so um, we're... We like to think we're catching up, but we are so far behind these things, and we'll never catch up. It's just trying to keep pace, just trying to kind of keep them in the uh, somewhere in the distance instead of them going over the horizon. So mm -hmm. um, we we ignored these kinds of approaches um, to our peril for so long, and there are other examples. Um, so um, uh, sulfamethoxyl trimethoprim is another combo therapy that's used a lot in hospitals because it targets two different steps in the same folic acid biosynthesis pathway, and so by targeting two different enzymes, the frequency of resistance um, goes up exponentially and so you can resist one drug but it's rare to resist both together and so we have been doing some of that and my, my lab's actually developed some drugs that work in parallel with those two um, so combo therapy is a really smart approach um, it's just that it's it's hard to do combo therapy when you can barely muster one drug for treatment because we ignored things for too long and we let the medicine cabinet get unstocked such that we can have infections where we have nothing to treat and so combo mm -hmm. just becomes a dream unfortunately yeah so maybe david the next question which is kind of ridiculous is also kind of appropriate which is what does the end of the world look like to you <laughs> <laughs> you know I, in my talk i give uh, i have a picture of um of the black death uh, that i use it's a picture that hangs in a gallery in madrid and it's, it's exactly what you think right Body, bodies lying in the street and things ablaze and, and the end of the world as we know it. Um, I have to believe we're not going to get there from a post-antibiotic sense that there's just enough interest from pharma and, and from government funding that we, we just keep putting the problem off instead of solving it. Um, so I think, you know, an oncoming, it, it's an increasing problem that's going to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, but I think we do just enough to keep it seriously abate from being a reality. So. Um, I hope it's not something that we ever get to, but it, it potentially is horrifying. I mean, you've got stats like 80% of all MRSA infections that are invasive are lethal and fatal if you don't treat them. This is how it used to be. Yeah. Right? So you get back bacteremia from MRSA, you're dead four out of five times if you don't treat. So this stuff is real. So as individuals, is there anything that we can do to ensure that we don't exacerbate the problem? I mean, yeah, the obvious uh, things like you don't take antibiotics if you don't need them. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got a sniffle, it's probably a virus and antibiotics don't work. And so um, my wife's always giving me a hard time because I never go to the doctors because I know most things self-resolve because almost everything is a virus. And so yep. uh, so most things you really just have to grin and bear through it. Um, as I suggested earlier, the, uh, the use of antibiotics in agriculture and so... Think about where you buy your meat from. That's the biggest thing you can do tomorrow to, to solve this problem is vote with your wallet away from places where antibiotics are used in the production of food products. So mm -hmm. in our local supermarket chain here in Tampa, we have something called Greenwise. Mm -hmm. I always buy Greenwise meat. 
there are other supermarket chains that have higher standards yet and so things never raised with antibiotics that even goes to eggs milk cheese yep. um, if you vote with your wallet it becomes easier for agriculture to stop doing that yeah that's usually the thing that i tell people is the primary thing you can do and yep. then be smart about it and um, just, you know, not sharing antibiotics with other people as well just simple mm-hmm. and obvious things that for those of us uh, maybe of a younger generation and those of us who are scientists we it, you would never think of it but um, parents and grandparents typically do this kind of stuff all the time mm-hmm. I hear this from family members all the time oh I have this antibiotic if you need it yep no no yep, yep. right the, the tendency in this country to self prescribe self medicate self diagnose mm-hmm. I think um, causes problems I think also it's not just generational, but cultural. I guess certain mm-hmm. countries are probably more prone to be potentially superstitious about these things sure. or, you know, just not adhere to doctor's instructions or just not to be able to afford them or be able to get them. And that's that's the, the truth, right? Is that it's, it comes back to this profit model that antibiotic development is expensive. I mean, pharma has to make close to a billion dollars in the first year of a new therapeutic to pay back everything that they put in to get it to this point because it was expensive. and resistance usually begins to appear after a year and becomes widespread after five to ten and so that potential profit margins go down which makes the price of drugs go up right i mean one of the tiger cycling it's, it's got its problems but it's a it's a good drug but it's almost never used because it's so expensive mm-hmm. um and so the the profit model to fix infectious disease helps to cause the problem because people can't afford to treat infections sometimes but I mean, I get it. I mean, I'd rather sell a product to someone every month, like a statin, for thirty years as a repeat customer. It's a guaranteed revenue train, um, yep. versus anti-infectives, which the model's just not there. So we've decided the bottom line is make sure you take antibiotics appropriately, and try and avoid meat and meat-based products. I think that have antibiotics in them. These are the two things that we can do simply. I mean, mm-hmm. you could then start to encourage people towards advocacy and and trying to make a difference in terms of the way politicians view these things, um, the way funding agencies consider these things. But those are major shifts, right? Those changes are slow to come and they're difficult to introduce. But it never hurts for people to know that this is a problem, share that this is a problem with other people and, and, and get increased awareness and understanding. And that's mm-hmm. why I do the, the festival with you guys every year. And that's why I do things like this, because if I can get a couple people to listen and it makes a difference, it's slowly by itself becomes infectious to understanding the problem yeah i have to say as even as a somebody working in a biological field i don't know of any advocacy groups specifically for this purpose are there any no i mean you've got the infectious disease society of america which is really the physicians who do this nationwide right and so it's not really a public groundswell it's it's the it's it's a professional organization and so Mm There may well be these organizations, but they are few and far between, and mm-hmm. they certainly are not mainstream, and they aren't um, offering things like funding opportunities, for example. That's usually when they've got enough clout and um, public perception that they can raise money for research, which that's always the trick, right? It's so expensive and slow, but if we don't do it, we never get anywhere. Yep. And on that note, <laughs> I think uh, we'd like to say thank you very much for coming out this evening. Sure. And, yeah. Um, Yeah, hopefully lots of interesting information for people in there and hopefully they don't take it for granted quite so much. Yeah, that's the hope. Um, Just people kind of beginning to recognize the problem. But it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me.
So it, I think it's a good teachable moment, right? It's, it's so often that I find myself saying when I deal with students that uh, science is not black and white, it's 10 shades of gray. And so being absolutely firm and, and, and feeling like you know everything is a stupid idea. And so I have on multiple occasions told students that what they're doing is complete idiocy and will never work, uh, only to be proved wrong by them multiple times. And so one of our, well, several examples, but one of the most interesting ones was a, a graduate student in chemistry whose committee I was on, and he had this original research project that they have to do off topic, this new idea that you could use to make antibiotics. And so his idea was that you can... Um, take a fungus which will make antibiotics and epigenetically manipulate it so rather than playing with it via different media or buffers you can dysregulate gene expression and so play with the histones or the, the methylases and all of a sudden it'll wake up and make something new and during his exam I told him he was a complete idiot for it um, and then he went away and did it and so within a couple months he proved it worked and so I then uh, I always make sure I tell them that I was wrong and you were right and I then wrote a grant on his idea and got it funded by the NIH. So, uh. <laughs> so at this stage we usually reel off a list of links to our social media but not everyone likes to have that kind of an online presence. So, remember, if you want to get updates on our future guests and recordings, you can always go to our website at twoscientists.org and sign up to our mailing list. And don't forget, you can also email us to send us your thoughts and questions.
Hello. We have a little cat visiting us. <laughs>